So, hi guys, uh, this is Flo, and uh, today we have Angela with us. Hi, Angela. Hi, Flo. <laughs> Where are you right now? I am near Washington, D.C. Near Washington, D.C., wonderful. Uh, we are actually six hours ahead, uh, far mm -hmm. from us, from each other. I uh, yeah. th Thanks a lot for uh, being with us on Sunday uh, evening, in your case. Noon? Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Sunday afternoon? Wonderful. Yeah. Um, Angela is one of uh, the first, no, she is the first uh, researcher who did a thesis uh, PhD on uh, polymaths. So, uh, after all of your research, Angela, do we finally exist? Oh, absolutely. Polymaths definitely exist. Um, and yeah, my, my dissertation was the first, and as far as I know, still the only doctoral dissertation that studied modern day polymaths. Um, you know, I looked in the literature, there's not much literature on polymathy as a phenomenon. There's definitely literature about one polymath at a time, usually from history, or there's literature also, I, you know, on openness to experience, um, on, on intrapersonal diversity, on self-directed learning. So there, there's literature on, on lots of other things that pertain to the, the subject. Um, so yeah, somehow, despite mm -hmm. the lack of literature on polymath, I mean, there's, there's probably less than 10 scholars who have really written about it. Um, and it's crazy. It's crazy that that's the case, but because I considered other areas and because I was also interviewing people and gathering more data, I was, I was able to, you know, create this 300 page document somehow. <laughs> Which is unbelievable. Uh, so what you understood was that um, polymathy is more singular individuals than groups. So there is no real understanding of uh, polymaths as a group out there. Exactly. Th that study had never been done. Nobody had ever looked at a group of polymathic people or group of polymaths to find common trends and themes among them. And... Mm -hmm. Another thing that made this study different is that it was in modern day. It wasn't looking at dead people. And also the fact that it was roughly half male and half female is another differentiator oh. because a lot of, a lot of the literature on polymaths is on men. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it was different. It was, you know, the whole point of a doctoral dissertation is to add to the literature in a way that makes sense to fill a gap. And the, the, there's, there was just a, a gaping hole in the literature. It, didn't, it wasn't too hard to find a way to contribute when it comes to polymathy studies because there's just not much there. But, you know, I, personally, I wanted another thing that made my study different as well is that I wasn't studying eminent creative geniuses like only the Leonardo da Vinci level. Yeah. I was studying highly accomplished people in both arts and sciences. So they had depth with their accomplishment. They had breadth with the variety and versatility of their achievements, mm -hmm. but there were not celebrity types per se. They weren't those, you know, Leonardo, like they were real people. So what I was studying basically yeah. was modern day male and female, the kind of people you could know in real life. And part of why I did that is because I want this to be accessible to real people. Because I believe all of us have polymathic potential if we allow ourselves that, even though we live in an age of specialization where that's sort of pressured out of us a lot. And so, and I, I've heard from so many people all across the world over these past couple of years since I released my dissertation about 
how meaningful it was to see their stories in the pages of my dissertation. I've had people say it made them cry. I've had people say it saved their lives. I mean, just to finally feel understood for, frankly, being a natural human. Like this is, in my opinion, the natural way of being. It's just been kind of intimidated out of us because we're taught that to be expert, to be successful, we need to pick one thing and stick to it our whole lives. And it's just not, it's not natural if you ask me, at least not for most people. Mm-hmm. Many of us, many of us, and uh, especially uh, those who join for the first time at the, in, in the verse, um, they are so enlightened. They're so delighted. No, delighted is the wrong word. It's it's about they they are become the, the moment they understand that there are others like them is so uh, helpful. Is is uh, helpful understand that they become themselves in this very moment. And I had this yes, moment yes. also a year ago, and seeing from this moment, looking back and seeing what you've been through all the time, and understanding that you are not alone. Yeah, is such a fundamental break in your whole understanding I, i think that's how coming out must be yeah oh yeah finally say okay that's how i am live with it or or don't live with it it's not my problem anymore because exactly. i can finally be me yeah so when when you understood that there are okay let's put aside those uh, single uh, singular individuals who are super prominent or celebrities uh, what did you find about those who are in the in the midsection of, of polymathy well I had a number of different themes um, can I just say before I go there I want to say real quick just in response to what you just shared is that yeah what, someone re- used the word relief recently that she was relieved to feel understood. Yeah. That, that was, yeah, that was relieved. the word she used. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and then yeah. as you know, I have a, a Facebook group and I'm, you know, I've got polymathsplace.com and I've got a YouTube channel called polymaths place. And I really am trying to bring awareness to this. So people don't feel so alone. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what actually that, that leads right into what I found in my dissertation with some of my themes and findings is that, you know, I think if there was one bottom line I found from my interviews in particular, setting aside the literature, but just looking at the data I uncovered through my interviews is that there are pros and cons of not being a specialist, of being polymathic in this age of specialization. And yeah, absolutely. One of the things I heard from the interviewees was it can feel like a very lonely journey because most people don't know the word. Most people don't have any sort of community about around this phenomenon. And also to some extent, just the way, the way we're built is to some extent, it's going to be a singular journey, no matter what you do, because you will never find another person just like you, you know, with your exact combination of experiences, but you can find people who have similar experiences with being polymathic or, or mm-hmm. putty like. I'll use some of your guys' lingo over there. So another thing I found, I'm trying to think what's most interesting of the findings, imposter syndrome, of course, uh, came came up. Oh, yeah, came up. Yeah, I didn't yeah. expect that, actually. I don't know. I just didn't think of that. But like half or more than half of the people I interviewed brought up imposter syndrome. Finances and family are definitely, you know, especially in childhood, the, the amount of resources, financial resources a, a young child has. Mm-hmm can impact 
how their polymathy shows up. But the thing that's interesting is that it's not just people with a lot of financial resources that become polymathic, which might be easy to mm-hmm. assume like, oh, you need money to explore your, your interests, to take classes, to travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I found out is that, that, okay, that's true for some people, but for other people, lack of resources helped them, forced them to become polymathic. It was the lack of resources that forced them to have to figure things out on their own because they couldn't outsource. Mm, okay. They couldn't outsource. So, and a lot of those mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. you know, reading library access to, you know, that's another way that people without a lot of financial resources learned a lot in a self mm-hmm. self-directed way, family, like functional households, dysfunctional households, either way, someone could become polymathic, which might be support. You might think, Oh, you need, you need a supportive upbringing as a child to really explore your capacities and interests and learn. But for some people, polymathy was kind of their safety. It became a safety net. It became a way to get out of a bad situation by becoming mm-hmm. more capable. So I think those were some of the more interesting findings that we didn't really know before. We didn't know that, you know, polymaths come from poor and rich families and dysfunctional and functional households. We didn't know that that they experience a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, but those were some of the things that were unearthed in my research. That's highly interesting because, uh, I mean, are we unicorns? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's highly interesting because when you say that uh, the, the, the upbringing, upbringing or uh, the, the family background, it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's one, this one big, big question. Is it innate? Are we born as small polymaths? I don't know. What's your feeling after all this research? Yeah, that was one of the questions I asked them, actually, mm-hmm. to see what their sense was of their own polymathy was it nature or nurture the vast majority of them felt it was both you had to have some innate capability though to be able to learn like there has to be some nature there mm-hmm. uh polymath the word means many learning so you have to be good at learning if you're if you're going to become polymathic you have to be able to learn but the environment matters too and you know one of the interesting things i i, I try to remember this in my own personal life I remember there's, there were two different women I interviewed and they each shared very different stories about how the people in their environment impacted their pursuit of polymathy or not. One of them, I called her Trinity. That was her alias in my dissertation. Trinity was thinking about double majoring in college. Mm-hmm. And I think it was engineering and art. She met with an academic advisor And the advisor was like, well, you're female engineering is like a really male dominated field. Just do art, just stick with art, you know, simplify your life. And she took that advice. She, she listened to that person's opinion about how she should limit herself. There was another woman, Wendy, I called her, who was a perfectionist, like never got anything except (laughs) A's, was really talented with math from a very young age and also music, but, but, but math was her thing. And so she decided to major in math in undergrad. And on one of her tests, she got a B, which was devastating to her. And she decided in a huff, I am not going to major in math. I'm going to go change my major right now. I got a B. And she went to her academic advisor and was trying to get him to sign the form And he asked why, and she explained, I got to be, I, I just can't do it. I got to be. And he, and he said, no, no, that is not enough of a reason to drop a major. I'm not going to approve this. 
And so she stuck with her major. But you can see with, with Trinity and with Wendy how the nurture, the, the influence of people around you can impact your path. And that's why it is so important to be aware of that and remember and see through a lens whenever someone's trying to direct how you live your life. Remember, oh, these are just their opinions. I have yeah. to decide. I have to decide how I'm going to live my life. And I think there is tremendous value in owning your puttiness or your polyness. If you recognize it as an integral part of your identity, then when people try to sway you away from that, you recognize that for what it is. Yeah. And you can say, oh, no, 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 no. This is part of who I am and I'm going to follow who I am. It's so important to be who you really are. Yeah. It's so important. That's right. Because uh, when, when I think back, well, well, um, most of the time in my life, uh, things became really weird and, and, and didn't work out well when I was listening too much to other people. Because exactly. this, this, this moment of, of insecurity, you, you finally end with uh, where shall I go now? What shall I do now? Um, if you're surrounded by a culture that says uh, you, you, are, you can't choose, you do this or that, not both. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, you're dependent on, on the opinion of someone else because, okay, what's the best way now? And as they don't understand how you feel in this moment, then you go with the best and the most easiest way or the most safest way. But then finally, it become, doesn't become the most best way for yourself. It's highly interesting. So when did you find out for yourself that you might be a Renaissance woman? Yes, that's a great question. When I was 18, I moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to Los Angeles to go to college at the University of Southern California. And I just, as luck had it, I signed up for a freshman seminar. That's what they called this short, like it met once a week for maybe two hours And it was a, a for fun class, no grades, just, you know, you're a freshman. It's a good way to meet some people, have some fun, low pressure. And I took this freshman seminar called Self-Expression and the Arts. And what the professor, he was actually a theater professor, Eric Trules, he created this competition. He called it the Culture Vulture competition. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, uh, the whole idea was each week when we met, we would come and share, like, have a list prepared and share what we had tried new in that past week. And I had gone to Christian schools up until I was 18 preschool till I was 18. I'd gone to Christian schools and I'd really lived in quite a bubble. And then here I was in Los Angeles. I had a car. I was living kind of, you know, I was living alone, not with my family. I had, you know, apartment mates, but I was so excited to just explore LA and just try new things. I, I think that semester I went skydiving and I tried sushi for the first time and I got my tongue pierced because someone dared me to pierce something and, you know, I, and I didn't want to scar my face. <laughs> didn't get a tattoo, but um, yeah, I just, I, I had so much fun exploring and trying things. Not that that made me a polymath, but it, it was polymathic in nature. It was op being open to experiences and trying and having, having breath. And, and so the seed was planted that semester. And ever since then, I have just had this tremendous hunger to experience that, to have the human experience, to live life in its fullest, not just deeply, but, but broadly and deeply. 
So I really give Professor Trules credit for that. I will say too, the way I grew up, you know, my my mother's a Cuban immigrant. My dad was a white American, you know, born in the States guy. I grew up, I was born in Berkeley and I grew up in a, in the very liberal San Francisco Bay Area, but going to Christian schools. I was a girly girl in a household of mostly males. Um, I grew up in a household with three generations. So I, I was the youngest and everyone there was older than me. And just little things like that. I, I, I learned to just by virtue of the situation I was born into, I, I learned to embrace the parts of me that didn't, that weren't supposed to go together. The duality of my identity was just there from the start because, you know, because of the things I just shared, the, the immigrant mother, the American dad, liberal conservative swirl I was in with school and with the environment, with the different age groups. And I could go on and on with other examples, but I just felt very comfortable with being things that people think don't go together just from a young age. That's interesting because in this phase where you just tried things and found, okay, wow, what's out there? Uh, life is so big and so wonderful and so colorful and what uh, all the things I can try and taste and do. When was the moment, um, because I think every one of us has this moment, where you actually feel and understand that your surrounding is overwhelmed by you? or doesn't feel quite well anymore with you because they somehow feel you might be different because of doing so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely felt like whenever I would explain about my personhood to people, I would let it out in little bits, you know, and people would be surprised too. Like I was a white house intern and I worked for multiple presidents and I interned for a California governor And, and I also, you know, had, have tried almost every adventure sport. I rode motorcycles for many years. Like those things aren't supposed to go together. If you have a doctorate, you're not supposed to ride motorcycles. Right. So yeah. I think I just had this sense of presenting versions of myself, you know, to people and letting out the surprise elements in little bits as I felt comfortable. And that is absolutely something I heard from the people I interviewed as well, that there's this kind of self-censorship that yeah. you have to do. Hiding. Hiding. Yeah. Because yeah. if you reveal too much, it's going to be too hard for people to understand apparently, which is really unfortunate. I hope we get to a time and place eventually where we can just share all the, all the parts yeah. of ourselves and not have to be concerned about how it will appear to somebody who thinks, those things aren't supposed to go together because anything can go together, right? Absolutely. Anything can absolutely. go together. But people you make trained. up your own combination. Yeah, absolutely. But people are trained uh, from the very first day of their life. You have to be in a box and you can yeah. have maximal, I don't know, three or five boxes as, for instance, for me, as a father, as a uh, university assistant, uh, as a mm -hmm. worker or as a friend, and that's it. But you can't come up with, oh, what? Now he's... Uh, uh, a trained teacher, a trained uh, journalist, or now he writes books, or now he's painting again, and and uh, what he wrote some uh, he wrote an album with uh, dances for piano. Yeah, I think people it, it's it's too much for them, and <laughs> that's the funny thing because they have no problem to sap around in the telly until their mind blows out. So they, that's no mm -hmm. problem. They can mm -hmm. follow five to six to seven Netflix shows. 
But if they meet one person in life, in real, and this person has in one, uh, in, in one ego, in one person, in one persona, as they call it, all these bits and pieces they find on Netflix, it's overwhelming. They don't get it anymore. How can this be? How could this be? Okay. Yeah. So uh, from this moment or, or after the moment, uh, there's always this big, big question, and I think we will do an episode on this one day, partners. Partners, mm -hmm. you have to find your soulmate. Otherwise, this won't work for, for many uh, polymaths. For me... And I tell this often, uh, Manuela, she's a specialist. She's so deep into details. Knocking right now is Valentina. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's so deep in, in details that I can live my, my, my generalism around mm -hmm. her. I don't mm -hmm. ask, I don't know, since I was a boy, since I was three, four, five, one of the first memories I have was that I never understood how people uh, can define or can talk about certain things. I always saw the relations between things. And it's mm -hmm. still the same when I'm, when I'm looking at a framework for, for the thesis. Uh, everyone is talking, yeah, this is this block and that block, and it fits together. And I don't see the blocks. I just see the lines and the intertwining between. Mm -hmm. I see this yeah. network. Yeah. So partners, what's, who are your partners in life who understand that Angela is in between. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Well, I will say, you know, you made some comments earlier and, I, and it relates to the question you just asked as well. I, I think for a lot of people who unleash themselves out of the box and live impressive, fulfilling lives and who are capable and competent and get things done, you know, Part of it is it, it can come across as threatening to people who don't do that or bragging or boasting or, or exaggerating. And so another part of the reason why we tend to hold back with some people is because we don't want to make them feel bad, right, in comparison, if they're not living their lives quite as fully. And so that's another element, too. I, you know, what's interesting, to speak, speaking of partners, so several of my participants brought up their love lives. And, and what I heard from them is it's not so easy. It probably makes it harder to find the right partner um, because who you are as a, a polymathic person may shift over time. So finding somebody who will kind of go with the flow as you wear different hats and so your identity shifts and morphs over time, you know, it takes someone who's going to be flexible to go with that. And like we said, it can be difficult to just reveal who you are. Because, because that censorship, the hiding is so common among polymaths so as to not overwhelm the other person, you know, when you're dating, that's even worse because it's a brand new person. You're trying to impress them. What do you share? What do you not share? How do you not overwhelm them? You know, the whole point is to get to know each other when you're dating, but navigating when to tell what about your personhood can, can be a challenge. Yeah. And finding, like you said, Florian, like with your wife, she's a specialist. She takes care of of the tree and you take care of the, you see the forest that works for you guys like that yin and yang sort of fit, but others might want a partner who's, who has more of the same interests, you know, more of the same uh, approaches or whatever. So, so figuring out, do you, do you want someone to kind of compliment you or do you want someone more similar? And it can be hard. It can be hard to find someone similar, you know, mm -hmm. because of a unique combination we all have. So it's, I guess what I'll say is it's not easy being 
polymathic and finding your soulmate. It's probably hard enough finding a soulmate just in general. But as for me personally, who do I like to have in my atmosphere? I mean, I like to have supportive people in my atmosphere, non-judgmental people in my atmosphere. So I tend to invite and keep those sorts of people around, you know, people who let me be myself. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's a serious point. People who let you be yourself and not mm -hmm. only allow you to be yourself, because that's also a difference. Yeah. Okay. That's how interesting. So let's, let's turn the perspective a bit and uh, let's say from a broader picture, let's have a look at a broader picture in your professional life. Is there also this up and down, this, this polymathy reflected mirrored in your CV? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I do the thing that so many polymaths do where I don't include everything on my CV. Um, you know, I have, I have whole jobs I don't even put because I mean, here's, here's how my career started. My first real job I ever had was in the nonprofit industry. I worked at a shelter for battered women and children when I was a, in undergrad and grad school. Then I worked for the federal government where I still work. I've worked in the federal government for about 14 years. I also am part of a family real estate business, a for-profit business. <laughs> and so I, I mean, I've, I've had nonprofit experience, government experience, for-profit experience. I wear, you know, hats in real estate, hats in, in the federal government, training and development, leadership development. That's where I've, I work now. I also wear a hat as a scholar, mm -hmm. you know, as a researcher, an mm -hmm. author, sort of, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So if I list, if I actually listed everything I've done and I do on my CV, oh yeah, it would be <laughs> such a zigzag path. But I, I censor just like so many other people do. We kind of have to in this age of specialization. We have, you know, if we want to fit in and, in, in, you know, in an organization that's looking for specialists, we have to pretend to some extent. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I'm hoping that someday that won't be the case where it will be safe enough where we can actually bring our full selves and all our talent and all our experiences, all our capacities, all our interests, all our hopes for future learning, even to work and just be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely, know, that, absolutely. that's what I'd like to see happen, but gosh, darn it. This age of specialization, we seem pretty stuck in that. We got to change that guys. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm writing absolutely. a book actually. I'm writing, writing a, book. a book now. Okay. Yeah. Polymaths and the business organization. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. We businesses really, if they can, if they could tap into this and welcome it and support it, yeah. it'd be good for, for the pe polymathic people on their teams. And it could be really smart for their success as well. So I'm literally writing a book on this very thing. That's super perfect because uh, what we are actually talking most of the time uh, in the verse is, uh, Entrepreneurs, business, how yep. can we fit in as polymaths in a world where uh, the, the saying goes, the, the, the saying goes, uh, the tinier the niche, the taller the tech you uh, have on your back. Generalists, after all, are those who bring everything together, who can make sense, who can work mm -hmm. as facilitators, as, as, as catalysts, as connectors, as bridge builders between specialists. Um, exactly. From your point of view uh, and from your research, generalists in business settings, where might they fit in? Yes. Except, except human resources. Because somehow, I don't know here in Austria, when I say, okay, but generalists, oh, yeah, put them in human resources. 
Yeah, of course, because it's a secondary level of, of sustaining the whole system, but it's like putting them away. So what do you think? Yeah, I've come up with something I'm calling the two types framework, mm-hmm. which basically says at a high level in any business organization, there are essentially two types of positions. The types of positions that are routine, stable, you know, you could basically keep doing things tomorrow like you did yesterday throughout the years. Okay. Maybe something like accounting. Okay. Yeah. Would be fairly routine like that. And then there are other jobs, maybe like in IT, mm-hmm. where if you don't keep learning, you're not going to keep up with the environment. Right. And because there are VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous problems, wicked problems, harsh learning environments. And so if you buy that, that there tend to be basically two general types of positions, those more trending towards stability and those trending towards complexity, then necessarily you probably would want different types of professionals in those two slots. And of course, the narrow specialist is very well suited to that stable routine job. And the kind of VUCA wicked harsh complex environment is more suited to polymaths who have lots of tools in their toolkit, who like to learn, who like to sink their teeth into problems. And if you get that match wrong, if you put a narrow specialist into the VUCA wicked harsh Mm. complex environment, or if you put a polymathic person into a very narrow specialist role, not good, not good. So just seeing that alone, like if, if businesses could just get that it could very much help their effectiveness when it comes to attracting talent, selecting talent appropriately, developing, retaining talent. So that's the kind of thing I'm writing about. Businesses right now almost exclusively just say everybody needs to be a specialist. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. what what ends up happening is that those people who are polymathic realize how a narrow specialist job that squishes them in a box sucks the life out of their soul sometimes. (laughs) And so what they end up doing a lot of times is they end up leaving organizations who don't understand them, don't appreciate them, don't leverage them, don't unleash them. Mm -hmm. And they become entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they do. So they can use their full skill set and their talent. That's highly interesting because it fits uh, when I think back, uh, when I started out in the in the um, hospital service, in the hospital job environment, uh, I started out in, in, in at an orthopedic station, and there the the things I had to do, all the tasks, they were very broad. So there was uh, everything from everywhere doing a bit, and this was fun. I really, it was fun because when I, uh, I entered the station in the morning, I knew there are so many different things to do. Mm-hmm. This is fun. I'm motivated. That's cool. Yeah. Then I uh, was uh, somehow leveled up into the administration. And I was sitting there in an office, uh, <laughs> north-faced office with no sun. Mm. I was just staring out of the window. And all I had to do was writing seven to eight mails per day. That's it. Oh, my gosh. Everyone else was like, oh, are you? that's unbelievable. That's the best job in the world. And it was for me. It was like hell. It yeah. was just sitting there, clicking around, because oh, yeah. I was not allowed to leave the office. I was just there writing seven to eight mails. That that was it for, for real good money, but for worth nothing. 
So it was yeah. it was one of those uh, how do you call it the bullshit jobs, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And after I left, I met this uh, this this one uh, assistant of the human resource department, and they said it was necessary to bring you to the administration. But when you were there, we had absolutely no idea what to do with you. So and then I said, okay, funny thing, huh? Why did you you ask me? I never had yeah. a meeting or talk about this about my development or what I can mm-hmm. bring in. You just mm-hmm. put me there because what? And then he said, well, because the place was open and we had no one else. And it's absurd. And that's how uh, the, the system thinks. I don't, I, don't, mm. I don't think that people or the, 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 the leadership level thinks. They just see once a month in the balance scorecard, okay, we need someone for this place. Who's next mm. in line? Oh, this guy. Okay, set him there. Give him the money and then it's, and then it's Okay. Uh, and, and keep him motivated with, I don't know, some nice gifts uh, at, at Eastern or Christmas. And yeah, mm-hmm. finally, when I left, I had so much things to do that I don't know, didn't know where to start first. So this this approach is good. You mentioned this this two. From, how did you call it? Two two. I call it the two types framework. At least that's what I'm framework. calling it now. That there are two mm-hmm. types of positions, mm-hmm. and there are generally two types of people, more or less. To yeah. fit into them, and that you you got to get that match right. I will say too regarding your your story. Thank you for sharing that about you know that job where you were underutilized. It's very frustrating to an intelligent, capable, polymathic person to have a job like that. It 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 doesn't challenge them. It doesn't use their capacities. It feels like they're wasting their time, and, and your time is your life. Absolutely, right? absolutely, and 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 you can pay me a, really a hell of money, but time is lost. I can regain money everywhere I want, yeah, and everywhere I want. Uh, but I think that many of our listeners and many of the worst out there uh, also have this feeling now and then that they, how can I put it best? Uh, for me, it was like this: sitting in a meeting, and I know that everyone from the leadership level down were just managers, managers in a system. Uh, to produce um, the, the product health. And no one of them understood that health is not a product. Health mm-hmm. is a system in itself. You can't say, mm-hmm. okay, come in. Oh, that's the problem. Let's drop in some pills for the next five years and then you're healthy because you just have a psychological problem. No, it isn't because after three months, another thing develops that uh, uh, pro or cons this health development process. So that's not a product. And then I was sitting there and just listening to those guys with all those, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience. And I said, and I just thought, you're wrong. You you didn't get the basics right. How can you, even if you don't understand how things work, how do you have the hybrids to decide? Or are, yeah. you, don't, you don't even ask someone because you know it, because you're so, I mean, yeah. you can do 10 years, you can do the, th- the wrong thing for 10 years as well. So, yeah, my, yeah. my guess is that they were narrow specialists <laughs> with their blinders on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have one algorithm and I will do it until the end of my day. <laughs> Terminator yeah. program. There really are downsides, you know, to yeah. special specialization. There's also benefits too. I, I would never say, do away with all specialists. Like we need no, 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 no. some people who focus deeply. The problem is the dominant ideology has said everybody should be a specialist. And that really limits what we collectively can accomplish because there are things we won't see. There are things we won't research. There are questions we won't even ask. 
if we don't have polymathic generalists involved yeah. and partnering with specialists in strategic ways. Yeah. So um, I wondered, um, are there, I don't know, two or three things uh, people could become aware of in the first place before they start looking for a job? Because I think uh, many of us uh, have the problem, okay, I know that I'm a polymath. Uh, mm -hmm. I know where my strengths and my weaknesses are, but mm -hmm. how, what, not how do I hide it? Because then we have the same problem as we started out with. Um, but are there some points where say, be aware of or think through X, Y, Z before you go? And, and Yeah. First thing I would say is just, in my opinion, For a polymath in particular, a job is not going to suit all of their needs. It's not going to meet all of their needs, any job. Mm -hmm. It's highly unlikely you would find a job that would meet all your needs for fulfillment and learning and stimulation forever. I mean, especially if you have lots of interests. So keep in mind a job is part of your identity. It's part of how you contribute. It's part of how you earn money and, you know, keep a roof over your head. But it's it doesn't have to be your whole life. You know, polymathy... For, for many people, it shows up in, in their vocation in part and also their avocations or their hobbies. So have a life outside of work, you know, if you <laughs> value learning and, and meeting and exploring and experiencing, then remember a job is part of that, but not all of it. The other thing is keep in mind, you know, you've got this marathon called life and you may have multiple jobs over the course of your life maybe more than multiple, many, you may have many different jobs. And so there may be seasons for things as opposed to having to find the perfect job that lasts you forever. For polymath, that's highly unlikely to, to feel good to them anyway. Because most, most people want change and variety and newness. That's something that, that appeals to polymathic people very much. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that would be my advice is that when you're on the hunt for job, keep in mind, it doesn't have to fulfill all your needs. Keep in mind, you're going to have many jobs over the course of your life have a life outside of work. Yeah. And just try to find things that light you up, that bring you joy rather than suck the, the life out of your soul, you know? <laughs> and if you're in a job that's doing that to you, well, free yourself, you know, like find a way out. It may take some time and effort, but you know, our jobs really are a big part of our experiences of being alive. You know, we spend eight hours a day on average, right? For most people, yeah. 40 hours a week, maybe it's less in Europe. I think that the French or the Italian, some of you in Europe, you just, you take a month off in the summer. You guys do it well. Americans, we got to catch up with that approach, don't we? Uh, anyway, in America, we work a lot on average. We work long hours and, and, and there's some myth, I think, especially in the United States, that the more you work, the more competent you are, the more you work, the more respectable you are. And there's, there's very little discussion about working smartly yeah, rather than just long quantity, 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 quantity. Yes. Quantity yeah. of work more important than quality. And I totally disagree with that approach contribution. Oh yeah. Being strategic in how you contribute is much more important than just doing a humdrum crappy job that took you forever to do. <laughs> like, how is that? <laughs> how is that useful? You're incentivized to work slow and stupidly in the system that says, if you work long hours, that we, we respect that. So 
Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, being this way, it's like freeing yourself from the expectations and the old narratives. It's being a critical thinker about the narratives we're sold, about what success means. It's being brave to forge your own path and curious and learning and soaking up the fullness of life in all its breadth and variety. Like, who could disagree with these things? These are, these are the ways that you live a good life, an authentic life. And if you don't live this way, like if you follow the narrative that says, be a specialist, focus on work, who cares if you have hobbies, just do what we say, we'll pay you, you'll be fine. Be a good girl, be a good boy. Just, just be the cog in the wheel. Fast forward, imagine you're old on your deathbed reflecting on your life. I just, I would not want to look back at my life and feel as if I, I just shrunk myself and shriveled myself yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the, the myths that society tells, which are BS basically. So I, it, there's a rebelliousness in the, in being this way. There's a real rebelliousness under the surface, even though we may be professional and competent and doing things under the surface. There's a little bit of a like, F you society. I'm going to live by my own rules. <laughs> and I love that. That's wonderful. That's really, really wonderful because it also, uh, it, it, it has this, this uh, aspect uh, of, there is this, this concept of, of form follows function. And mm -hmm. for us polymaths, it should be more like uh, security follows freedom. Mm-hmm. Because the more freedom, yeah. for freedom we have, the freer we live, the more we learn, yes. and the more safe, secure, whatever we are and we feel. And living in this self-built net of security, of in this self, in this evolved, or or I don't know how to put it, this this and, and maybe an evolution of security oh, yeah. we are through. The more people Absolutely. can show what you are able to do. If you accept yourself with your mm -hmm. freedom within your own security net, is this yeah. easy? No, it isn't, but it's the job of a pioneering soul. And I think yeah. that's what we are pioneering, pioneering soul. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Freedom. That's another theme amongst polymath. Like they, they have chosen to free themselves. They have chosen in a way to give birth to themselves, yeah. to curate and yeah. write their own stories. Um, which I think is a beautiful thing. If you ask me, doing just that is what we're meant to do, what we're here to do, one of the most important things you can do. I mean, what is the point if, if you just absorb society's directions and narrative? I mean, in a way, it's like becoming machine-like. Yeah. I'll take the program, I'll download it, and then I will be an automaton and I will enact it. Like, let's be human Let's be distinctly human. Let's not download some software and just live out society's direction. No, let's let's be who we really are in smart, strategic, brave, curious ways. And freedom is, yeah. Polymathy is a way of freeing yourself, in my view. For people who, who for for whom that is authentic and resonates, it is a way of freeing yourself. And if you if you feel this tendency to explore and be broad and learn and switch and change and be open. And you, if you feel that urge and you don't do it, you're not free. That is not freedom. That is fitting someone else's expectations, mm. despite the fact that it takes away from your own fulfillment. 
That's not freedom. Or to put it in the techno bubble of 21st century, don't be a coding line that has to be debugged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Polymathy really, to me, it's a story about human potential mm-hmm. in its fullest, mo- most unique form. Oh, here's another thing that's interesting. Maybe this is too heady. I don't know, but I'll share it anyway. As far as I'm concerned, individuating and expressing your onlyness is part of what helps you and the collective evolve. In fact, there's a book called The Phenomenon of Man, where where Teilhard studied the patterns of evolution in animals, plants. And he said that there are two fundamental patterns you see in the evolutionary process. One is increased individuation, increased uh, becoming unique, unique parts. At the same time, that you find increased cooperation. So it's like we're individuating, we're becoming more distinct, more multifaceted at the same time that that multifacetedness allows us to make more connections and linkages. And this is exactly what polymaths do. They become more and more individuated and they explore their onlyness at the same time that their multi-talented big toolkit allows, and this is what I heard from them, allows them to find common ground and connection with others more easily. It also also allows them to see linkages, build bridges, synthesize the things you mentioned earlier, because they, they can see the whole forest rather than just one tree. So if you ask me, polymaths are moving humanity forward. They're evolving us. They are tapping into the evolutionary impulse to individuate and to cooperate in new and strategic ways. This is part of our evolution. That's absolutely the most wonderful thing I ever heard on this whole topic. Oh. It is true and it feels right. And I learned for myself sentences that feel right are right. Yeah. Absolutely exactly. wonderful. Angela, thanks so much for this wonderful insight into the researchy clouds and fields of, <laughs> of polymathy uh, and your input. Um, I say thank you. Uh, uh, maybe we can have you on the show another time when the book sure. is on its in its uh, in, the, in the finishing line, Perfect. and and uh, you can tell us a little bit more about where we can find it, where we can read it, then. Uh, yeah. And I would be delighted to, ha- to have you on board once more. Awesome. Thank you, Flo, so much for having me. It was a delight to chat with you, and I look forward to chatting with you more. Angela, thanks a lot. See you and read you soon. All right. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.